Good morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can get that and turn it to Psalm 108. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, the text is going to be up on the screen behind me, so uh, no worries there. Um, And while you make your way to Psalm 108, uh, Merry Christmas. You know, it's good to be together. Um, I hope you had fun. I know I did. Me and Abby probably drove about a thousand miles this past week <laughs> all over the place. Um, but anyway, I hope you're at Psalm 108 by now. The plan today is that we're going to analyze Psalm 108 in two parts, and then from there we'll step back and kind of reflect on what we've analyzed and what we've observed, um, and then, then we'll we'll be good. We'll be good to go. So if you're there, maybe I should get there, then I will read. God's word for us from Psalm 108. A song, a psalm of David. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with my being. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples, and I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great above the heavens, and your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. God has promised in his holiness. With exaltation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah my scepter, Moab my wash basin, my wash basin. Upon Eden, Edom I will cast my shoe, and over Philistia I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? Do you not go out, O God, with our armies? Oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. Amen. Praise be to God for his word. So growing up, unfortunately, God's glory never seemed to be much comfort to me. And what I mean by that is I never found myself praying what David is praying here in a time of need. Oh, God, let your glory be over all the earth. You know, like many, I may have prayed that in my good moments because I knew that it was in God's word. It's a psalm. It's a good thing to pray. But honestly, I was kind of scared of God's glory, if that makes sense. And of course, God's glory is something that should be feared. It's something to be revered. But to me, it always seemed like a boring reality or a very damning reality. Reality. So, you know, I never thought of God's glory in a way that pointed me to the gospel. It always pointed me, you know, as a young believer in Christ, how faithful I needed to be in order to keep God's love. That's kind of the emotions and the feelings and the thoughts that I had around this idea of God's glory. And so because I'm a sinner and I struggle and I'm unfaithful to God, I never had peace. I was always striving for it. And so in my mind, God's glory was connected to his righteous law, not the gospel. When in reality, it's connected to both. 
And so to explain what I mean, here's a simple illustration, and it's not original to me. God's glory in the law says, I've really messed up. My dad is going to kill me. But God's glory in the gospel is, I've really messed up. i got to call my dad. You see, I knew God's glory wasn't fake news. I knew it was real news. But I really struggled so bad as a young believer in Christ to see it as good news. So God's glory actually results in our deliverance. And we're going to see this in Psalm 108 today. So look with me now at the verse, first five verses in part one, praising God. So part one is praising God. So these first five verses, before we start at verse 1, it's very interesting. They all come from Psalm 57, verses 7 through 11. I mean, in exact quotation, these first five verses are Psalm 57, 7 through 11. And that's also a psalm written by David when he was fleeing from King Saul and he found refuge in a cave. And so as David is fleeing from King Saul, he finds refuge in this cave. But it's not the cave that is David's ultimate confidence, right? This, this is like uh, something of confidence, and he's telling of his confidence and his trust that he has in God. And so what he's saying in Psalm 57 is, although I do have safety in this cave, my ultimate safety, my ultimate confidence, my refuge is God. And so that's why I have peace. But I'm also thankful for the cave. We got, you know, so that's, that's probably what he's thinking. And that's what he's saying in Psalm 57. And so at the end of Psalm 57, David pins what we see reused at the opening of our psalm today. So verse 1 says, a song, a psalm of David. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all of my being. And this, my heart is steadfast. It's like my heart is fixed. It's the, the mind of my heart is made up. For instance, it's established. Nothing's going to keep me from singing and making melody to you, O God, with all of my being, with honor and glory and reverence. I'm going to praise God because nothing is going to stop me from that. Not even the trouble that surrounds me or the enemies knocking on my door. My heart is steadfast. It's decided that it's going to praise God. He continues with this imagery in verse, in verse 2. Awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. And so here he's describing this stirring up of praise. Awake, O harp and lyre, awake. I will arise and sing praises at dawn. I'm going to get up early and stir myself up and sing. And with instrumentation, make melody to God. Making our way down to verse 3. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praise to you among the nations. Continuing here with this, this imagery of praise, with all of the singing and all the playing of instruments, and giving thanks to God among the peoples and singing praises to God among the nations. So here he's saying, I'm going to praise the, you know, David, who's eventually going to be the king of Israel. Maybe he is the king of Israel at this point. He's saying, I'm going to sing among the nations, not just Israel. It's not just Israel that I'm going to be in the midst of praising God, but all the nations, all the peoples. And so that's important as we move forward through this psalm. David has this greater vision in view. And why is David praising God? Well, verse 4 tells us, 
for your steadfast love is great above the heavens and your faithfulness reaches to the, the clouds. For great, God is great in steadfast love and he's rich in faithfulness. You know, this word steadfast love is, is really indicating, you know, God's devotion in binding himself to his people through his covenant. It's his covenant love. So he's saying, I'm going to praise God. He is my confidence. He is my assurance. He is my refuge. I'm going to praise him because he is stead. He's great in steadfast love and he's rich in faithfulness. So that's, that's those first four verses. And then verse five. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. And this is implying all the nations acknowledging the, the greatness of God and honoring him for his majesty and his power, right? We're going to praise him among the nations for his great and steadfast love, rich in faithfulness. Be exalted. Let your glory be over all the earth. So there's this, this picture, right, of God kind of laying out his glory and the nations praising God. And verse 5 really, in, as we'll see in this psalm, is almost like the hinge of, of part 1 and part 2. If part 1 was the first four verses, Part five is like the doorway that enters into the rest of the psalm, right? So we're praising God, and he says, and let your glory be over all the earth. Let your splendor and your abundance and your riches and your honor be known. That's what he means by glory. Let the weight of who you are be known. Have you ever been to, or I mean, you could see it in pretty much every sports movie, which most sports movies are corny. They're a little bit light on the plot, but they're always good. There's always this good feeling or this, you know, someone wins and yada, yada, yada. But there's always this moment where dad's talking to his daughter or his son and tell them, you know, they're about to go out and he's having this pep talk. And he's always, this is kind of what's being said. You go show them what you're made of. You know, it's like, go show them. We've practiced hard. we worked hard. You know, go show them what you're made of. That's kind of what this is, like. Show that, like for God to show the, the people of the world, to show the world what he's made of, to let his glory fill the earth, the weight of who he is. And one way that, that God shows his glory is in creation. There's an illustration from uh, Paul David Tripp in his book called All, where he talks about how God has displayed his glory in creation. And he uses the word glory scope. And almost like a telescope, right? A telescope would help us to see. It points to the stars and it magnifies them so that we can see their illuminating glory. So the earth focuses our eyes on God and magnifies his glory. So it can produce wonder in us like a glory scope. You know, every beautiful and amazing sight and sound and color and texture and taste and touch of this created world has this gloryscopic intention built into it. Every powerful and mighty thing created, every animate and inanimate, it's all gloryscopic by design. God created it this way so that our poor eyes could see his glory in, in creation. So this gloryscopic, this gloryscope in creation. Another way that God you know, reveals his glory in the earth is by his law. We know what God is like, is like in, by his law. It reflects him. It reflects his perfection. It reflects his holiness. It reflects how glorious he is, how perfect he is. You know, with Israel's history, one reason that Israel was to follow the law, the Levitical law, the sacrificial system, the moral law, was so that the nations could see what God was like. 
right? Now, of course, they royally failed at that, ultimately, right? There was no one who was perfect. There was always failures. There was always shortcomings. And so in this way, um, why would it be a good thing that God would let his glory be over all the earth in form of the law if all it did was show us how, how much of a failure we are in comparison to God? Why would God revealing his glory in the law be good for us if we can't keep the law and it damns us? We're going to consider more about this later on in another way that God has revealed his glory in the earth. So that was part one, verses one through five, um, praising God. So now we're going to move to part two of this psalm, which is the rest of the verses. And the part two of this psalm is pleading for deliverance. Pleading for deliverance. To give you a taste of where we're going, I want you to remember this as we move forward through the rest of these verses. The deliverance of God's people is unavoidably linked to God making his glory known over all the earth. So the deliverance of God's people and God making his glory known are unavoidably linked together. One happens because of the other, if you will. So verse 6 through verse 13, interestingly enough, comes exactly from Psalm 60, verse 5 through 12. So there's not a single word in this psalm that is original to this psalm. It all comes from two previous psalms. So the rest of this, like I said, comes from Psalm 60. In Psalm 60, I don't know if this is that interesting, but it kind of is to me. It has the longest title of all the psalms. So there that is. Uh, and what's going on is recording the events of 2 Samuel 8 and 1 Corinthians 18. And there's a battle going on in Edom, which is, if you're looking at Israel and its, its northern and southern kingdoms, it's right at the bottom. It's this huge plot of land. And it's important for some reason that we don't need to get into that David conquer this area, that this, become Israel's, this becomes Israel's part of Israel's territory. Edom, it's like this fortified city, as he later says. Like, who's going to lead us to that? Who's going to help us conquer that? Um, so that's what's going on in the context of that psalm. And so verse 6 in our, in our text here, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand. This is the only hint we're given as to the reason for this psalm. Apparently deliverance is needed. That's, that's pretty much all we can say. Deliverance is needed, and he's calling on God. In this immediate context, uh, give salvation, answer me, because we need to be delivered. And he continues on in verse 7. And he, this isn't really much of a prayer, what we're about to look at. It's more of like God, uh, David reminding God of his promises. Hey, remember, you know, you promised in, in his, God promised in his holiness or in his sanctuary. With exaltation, I will divide up Shechem and Portion out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. And Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. So again, Shechem and Succoth, Gilead, Manasseh, Ephraim, and Judah. This section is, is a section of this song. And it's declaring that both the southern Israel, which is Judah, the northern Israel, Israel, which is Gilead, Manasseh, and Ephraim, and the Jordan River, where you'd find Sekoth and Shechem. All of it belongs to God. It's all His. That's what we get here. Remember, this is all yours. You've said this about these places. 
These are your places, and you are the God of these places. You are sovereign. He's reminding God of these things. And then when it comes to uh, Moab and Edom and Philistia, what you see here is these are territories that surround Israel. These aren't really territories that belong to Israel, but they belong to God, right? That's what's being communicated. Now, whether this reflects a historical reality in, um, in the history of Israel or not, that could be debated. But what seems to be communicated is this idea that whether these, whether these nations um, proclaim that they know God, whether they have any knowledge of God, of the true God, it doesn't matter. God is in control of it all. All the nations, all of Israel, all the nations surrounding Israel, it's all God's. And that's what this, you know, David's like, remember, God, you've promised. These are all yours. We're asking for deliverance, you know, from places that you're the God of. So give us deliverance. If salvation is going to come, it's going to come by your hand. We need help. And he's reminding God, you said these are your places. So deliver us, please. You're God of everything, right? And then verse 10, who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go out with our armies. And then continuing to finish, O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly, because it is he who will tread down our foes. David asked this question in almost a rhetorical manner. Who will? Well, he just told God that he's God of of Israel and he's God of all the nations. So who's going to lead us if we're to get this fortified city, if we're going to get deliverance? Well, it's God. For if you do not go with us, verse 11, like you haven't been going with us, and if you don't go, we don't get deliverance. Because our salvation, Israel, our army, our people, we're little compared to these nations. Worthless is our salvation. We have no hope if you don't help us, God. And so he says, but with God, we won't lose. We will triumph because he will tread down our foes. He will defeat the enemies of the people of God. If victory is to be ours, I've learned that God must go with us and give it to us, David is insinuating. And so this last verse points us back to verse 4, to God, who is great in steadfast love and who is rich in faithfulness. And so we pretty much pedaled to the metal through that psalm. And so we're going to lay off a little bit. And we're going to reflect on kind of the things that we see and that we've considered out of Psalm 108. And so reflection number one, God is great in steadfast love and he's rich in faithfulness. And so I want us to consider the character of God. And the way we can see the character of God is in his plan of redemption, which is what this whole Bible is about. And we do this often. We go through this this plan of salvation because as pastors and as the the men who stand up in in the pulpit, we want to reiterate and catechize us that this Bible is about Jesus. It's about God who promised redemption and Jesus who came to accomplish redemption and the Spirit who applies redemption. So it's good for us to consider this over and over. And so I was, you know, studying and looking up this uh, just finding my way through internet, looking at articles and blogs, and I ran across this article from a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary, and he was talking about how God 
had always planned to rule his world through an earthly king in an earthly kingdom. And I thought it was interesting given the stuff I was studying. And so some of these thoughts come from that, that blog and then others are from our text today. And so let's consider together the plan of redemption with that in mind. You know, Adam, he had kingship over creation. He had dominion over all the animal life. He had dominion over, over people, over, over things, over plants. He had control over plant life. And all of that was underneath God. He was the ruler of the earth. And so God is spreading his dominion over creation through Adam, if you will. But Adam fails at this task, right? He rebels against God, yet God does not abandon his purpose to rule the earth through an earthly king. Adam, in a perfect world with no sin, was given the responsibility to, to, to take dominion over the earth, and he failed, and sin entered the world. But God, in a covenant of grace to Abraham, kind of reignited this, reignited this, this idea or, or his plan to rule the earth and have his dominion over the earth through this king. And so he promises Abraham that he would be a father of many nations, that king would come, kings would come from him, and through his descendants, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And so here we see this theme or this purpose of God spreading his glory through a king in an earthly kingdom. It's picked back up with this covenant that God made with Abraham. And so now uh, Israel, especially through its kings, would be a blessing to the nations. It's where we're at in redemptive history. And so in Exodus 19.6, God says that he brought Israel out of Egypt to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And what he means is that Israel, if you would keep my covenant, if you will obey my voice, being set apart, and you would mediate my presence and my blessing to the nations around you. That's what God says. If you would do this, then, then you will mediate my presence and my blessing and my glory to the nations around you. You know, Israel was meant to be a light to the nations, as we've ta I've talked about often with Isaiah 60. A bright light on a hill showing the nations the way to Zion, the way to salvation. You see, God was Israel's king at the time, but Israel didn't trust God. They were jealous and scared of other nations and, and their kings who they thought were stronger than God, apparently. But interestingly enough, God says, I'll give you a king. I'll give you a king. And so through Moses, God tells Israel, but I'm going to pick the king. I'm going to pick who he will be. He's going to be upright. He's going to be perfect. And he's going to rule according to my law as God has Abraham uh, tell Israel in Deuteronomy 17. He's going to be a perfect king. And so moving forward in redemptive history, that was, you know, the early stages, if you will. We then begin to see this downward descent of Israel into sin and rebellion during the period of the judges. And then like it says, all throughout Judges, the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord over and over and over. And then Israel needed a, a, you know, Israel needed a holy king to make them a holy nation. God said that they would be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. And so, like I previously said, with this faithless and ungodly reason, they asked God for a king. And so he grants his people a king, but they choose Saul. 
Obviously, Saul was not upright. He didn't rule according to God's law, and he was eventually removed, and God chooses David, and he sets him as king over Israel, and God makes a covenant with David. And he says to David, a king will come for you, come from you, and he will have a kingdom that will last forever, and his throne will last forever. It will have no end. And of course, after that, Israel had many kings after David, but none were perfect. None ruled exactly according to God's law. So we're still waiting this one who would make Israel a blessing to the nations, who would make Israel a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. We're still waiting for them because none were good enough. And then in steps Jesus, born in a manger, in an animal stable. And we'll move on to reflection number two. It just kind of continues here. I'm just, God's king shows us a kingdom of grace and mercy. So this king shows up, the one that he's going to rule the earth with. And he shows us a kingdom of grace and mercy. You know, Jesus, God's king, came, but he didn't come with military power to lead Israel to victory. He was born of a virgin in a stable in Bethlehem, as it was prophesied. He would be preceded by a forerunner as it was prophesied. He preached righteousness to Israel. Repent, the kingdom of God is near. He taught in parables as Psalm 78 said he would and that it would fall on deaf ears as Isaiah said it would. He would be a rock of offense and a stone that people would stumble over as Isaiah said it would. And his ministry here on earth would be miraculous. As Isaiah prophesied it would. That he would be humbled. This this king that Israel expected. He would not be raised up on a pedestal of great military and political power, but would be humbled. And he would serve, not be served. As As the Psalms said he would. He would have a sinless life and ministry, blemish free in order to be the perfect sacrifice to cleanse sinners from their sin and to cover them in righteousness, as the sacrificial system explains that it will. He would destroy the devil's work, as God promised in Genesis 3.15, and he would draw Gentiles to himself, as he promised he would. Isaiah says, In the day... In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. Isaiah said that. And in John 12, it says, Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See this, getting us, see, this is getting us nowhere. Obviously, trying to trap Jesus. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethesda in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. We would like to see Jesus. You see, Jesus, this king, he would be a great redeemer of the Gentiles, as Isaiah said he would. He would conquer death, as as Isaiah said he would. And he would do it all because Christ is all. Listen to this quote. The underlying theological fact is that the dying of Christ is a kingly act, not merely in the sense that he dies royally with dignity, 
but in the sense that his dying is his supreme achievement for his people, the act by which he conquers their foes, secures their liberty, and establishes his kingdom. The kingdom of God is so paradoxical because he's promising all these glorious things where oppression will stop, tyranny will be, will be overcome, and it will be stopped. The blind will see, the lame will walk, sinners will be forgiven, a new kingdom will be established, and it's one of mercy and of grace, and it happens and he's dead. That's the big plan? What is the big plan? Because he's dying for us. He came the first as the Messiah to accomplish redemption. He was the lamb without blemish to be slaughtered for the nations to be saved. And he will come again as a husband to get his bride and to judge and give justice to all those who have rejected him and gone their own way. You know, it's, we have to consider if Jesus came the first time, you know, as this, this dictator, as this judge, as this king who's coming to judge the sins of, sins of the world and overthrow tyranny and, and oppression, who would be left? If that's why he came the first time, who would be left if he came to judge sin? But he didn't come to judge sin. He came to die in our place. He came to be sin for us in order that we could become the righteousness of God. God has let his glory shone, God has shown his glory in the gospel. The kingdom of God spreads his glory to all the nations in the glories of Calvary, where our righteous king died for our injustice. The just one died for the unjust. And so this kingdom is one of, of mercy and of grace. So it's right for us to see David in this psalm, imperfectly but really looking forward to the fulfillment that all, of, all of, God's, of all the promises that God has made from the beginning, where his beloved children would not just include Israel, but all the nations would be his kingdom, where his glory would be restored and spread to his people because of his king. Justin reminds us often of this, and it's always good when I hear it. He did all of this while we were his enemies. How much more now that we're his children? All of that was the plan of history while you were his enemy. While you hated him, he decided from the beginning of time that he would send King Jesus, his son, in your place to live for you, to die for you, to resurrect, defeating everything that holds us captive, defeating the devil's work. And so no matter the change in circumstances around you, just like as David is saying in the psalm, they need deliverance apparently, no matter the change in circumstances around you or the sins in which you habitually struggle and how unpredictable emotion, the emotions are within you, God in Christ is always great in steadfast love and rich in faithfulness to you. How can I be so sure of this? Well, this leads me to the third reflection. As you struggle with life in this fallen world, as a new creature in your old, dead, foolish flesh, remember that all of God's glory will one day be over all the earth, ultimately and eternally. 
You know, this, my brothers and sisters, we need to continually hear. There is more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. This is not a God no longer cares about your life pass. No, it's a God is so righteous and so merciful and great and steadfast love that he crushed his son in order to forgive you because he wanted to pass. And so glory to God in the highest, stop cheating, stop lying, stop snooping on websites you shouldn't be. Stop being jealous of your neighbor. Stop your idolatry. Stop over-drinking and overeating, and stop your hatred of one another and your anger towards one another. Brothers and sisters, stop running with your own understanding, for you are free in Christ Jesus. Although, yes, we still struggle with these things. You are free in Christ Jesus to struggle against those things, to keep putting yourself in, like, falling on Christ Jesus, looking to Calvary, finding forgiveness for your sins and finding strength and rest to fight against your sin. It's easy to fight against a sin that you know is already defeated, although it sucks because we still struggle in this life and it causes pain and there's still heartache and there's still struggle and it's not easy and it's not good. But rest is our weapon because Christ has defeated it all. So we fight as the church of God delivered. We are a delivered people, struggling against the sin that has been defeated, struggling against foes that God has crushed and will finally crush. And so take heart. Keep fighting sin. Keep running from your own understanding. Keep trusting Christ Jesus because He is enough. Everything that I just spent time talking about means that you have peace with God. He is enough to really give you peace. And I know you don't always feel it. I don't always feel it. Most of the time, I feel like a mess. But I know that God loves me because of Christ Jesus. And so I tell you that, and we should tell each other that. It's interesting that the first time God describes himself in Exodus 34 is the things we've been talking about. I'm rich in faithfulness. I mean, I'm not quoting it, but it's the same thing. It's, I'm steadfast in love. I'm rich in faithfulness. I'm forgiving. I'm merciful. That's what God wanted people to know. Of course, he said, I'm, I'm going to judge, right? But because God is merciful, he, he did not judge. It's just instead of judging you and me, he judged his son. But we should know that. While we were his enemies, he said, I'm rich in faithfulness. I'm great in mercy. And so I'm going to save my people. God is infinitely great and mighty, yet he delights to stoop down to needy people like you and me. This is what all of Isaiah is about. The law says, man, I've really messed up. My dad is going to kill me. But the gospel says, I've messed up. i got to call my dad. This is life in Christ. And so reflection number four is we are the church. And as the church, like David says at the end of this psalm, grant us help against the foe, verse 12 and 13. For vain is the salvation of man, but with God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. We can do nothing. We read this morning of our absolute depravity 
to do nothing to save ourselves. And this is what he's saying. Vain is the salvation of man. Worthless. He's talking about maybe at first glance military might, but this is also the Psalms are the prayers of Jesus, right? He says men can do nothing for themselves. Nothing. So God, do something. Do something, and he did. He defeated all of our foes. He accomplished all of his purpose in Christ Jesus. And because of God's king, we are being built up into a holy nation and a royal priesthood. A holy priesthood. Before coming to CBC, final remarks here, I don't think I would have looked at this psalm this way or said the things that I've said this morning. So I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful for Justin. I'm thankful for the family that I have here. And I want to encourage us that God's glory being known in all the earth finds its penultimate fulfillment in Christ Jesus' life, in his death, and his resurrection. And it will find its ultimate fulfillment when he returns and sets up the new heaven and the new earth. God's glory is shown in the incarnation, in the crucifixion, in the resurrection of Christ Jesus. God's glory, which damns us all, and his steadfast love and faithfulness merge in Christ Jesus to save us. So I hope you're encouraged today in seeing how God's glory results in our deliverance. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word and that every, every piece of it feeds our souls. Father, thank you for your son Jesus, for the king that you sent, not to be served, but to serve. Father, thank you for your plan of redemption in which you did accomplish in Christ Jesus and that we have peace with you and we come to you as our father. We come to you weary and we come to you struggling. We come to you doing good by your grace in all kinds of ways, everything in between. But we come to you knowing that you love us and that you loved us so much, you crushed your son. And so we come to you confidently to say help when we need help, to say deliver us when we need deliverance, and to say thank you that ultimately, no matter what our circumstances are here on earth, eternity is set in stone. We will be with you forever. We will reign with Christ. Your glory will be over all the earth. And we praise you for that. We thank you that we get to come to the table now to feast upon Christ who was crushed for us, who spilled his blood for our forgiveness and in whose life earned us righteousness to give us the confidence to come to you. So, Father, bless this time as we continue together. In Jesus' name, amen.